have a quick disclaimer this week. While there isn't anything graphic, there's quite a bit of violence, some adult themes, and mentions of sexual assault. I put the details on the post on mythpodcast.com if you want more info before listening. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we will cover a lot of ground in Greek mythology, from Hades and Persephone to Tantalus to the curse of the House of Atreus. It's a big, dark week. And you'll see why you probably should not dog-sit for Zeus, and why you should pass on any invitation to an ancient Greek potluck dinner. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's a water creature that might try to lure you into the water with his good looks. Well, that is, if you can get over his stinky back hair. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 59, The Violence of Our Ancestors. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Like I said, we're back in Greek mythology. So that of Zeus, Hera, Hercules, Hades, and all of them. You don't really need any background for this one, even if you haven't heard the others. The Olympians are immortal and terrible, and the time period doesn't matter much. Though, this is the generation before the Trojan War. So, 1200 to 1300 BC. And we'll jump right into the story of Hades and Persephone. Persephone was walking in a field, having fun and picking flowers with her 1,000-ish friends. As the beautiful daughter of Demeter, she had garnered some attention from the Olympians. Demeter noticed every look from every man on Olympus, as well as the looks Persephone was starting to get from Hera for Zeus's looks. That's when Demeter knew she and her daughter had to leave. They left in the night, with the fires burning bright on top of the mountain, while they escaped into the warm darkness of summer. Persephone's life ceased to be whiling away time with the most powerful beings in the universe. Instead, she had to live in this ramshackle little house on the edge of the world, so far that even Zeus couldn't find her. Still, it wasn't that bad. She had her friends, the literal 3,000 daughters of the ocean, that would keep her company. Persephone didn't see the danger of catching the eye of an Olympian. She didn't understand why they had to leave Olympus. She bent down to pick the flowers, and then the ground shook. Off in the distance... Dirt flew in the air as large cracks snaked their way along the ground. As a chasm opened, Persephone screamed, and the Oceanids fled. He was coming, and there was nothing anyone could do to stop him. Persephone screamed so loudly that her terror echoed across the world. Demeter heard it, and panic flooded her heart. She had been planting a seed, but dropped all that and flew to her daughter, hoping and praying she wasn't too late. In seconds... She was in the field where her daughter had been gathering flowers. The screams still echoing. The chasms in the ground had closed. And Persephone was gone. Winter was coming. And absolutely no one was ready for it. That was because, well, it had never happened before. The plants withered and the ground began to freeze. And people rushed to put on anything that would shield them from the biting cold, and hoped this winter wouldn't become a regular thing. It was because of Demeter's deep despair over the disappearance of her daughter. She searched the face of the earth for days, and then weeks. Unfortunately, she had hidden her daughter too well, far from the side of the Olympians. No one knew anything. That is, until a witch showed up at her proverbial door. 
You might remember Hecate from the Jason and the Argonauts series. She was the goddess of witchcraft, magic, ghost, necromancy, sorcery, and other things. Medea was one of her priestesses, and while it totally makes sense that she would live in the underworld, she was also highly regarded, especially by Zeus. Hecate was a three-in-one goddess, meaning that she was in three people all merged at the back. She had six legs, six arms, and I would imagine couldn't walk anywhere without two people awkwardly walking backwards. She said she, or they, had news of Persephone. Persephone had been kidnapped by Hades, Zeus's older brother, and the god of the underworld. She was going to be married to Hades, and, sadly, there was nothing Demeter could do to stop it. The winds outside raged as Demeter wept for her daughter. She said she would go to Zeus to demand Persephone's return before it was too late. Her daughter had been kidnapped, and she would make it right. Well, no, she wasn't exactly kidnapped, Hecate said with some hesitation. She was given in marriage by her father, Zeus. Also, yeah, Zeus is her father. Hades wouldn't kidnap his brother's daughter without his permission. Zeus knew, and there was nothing Demeter could do about it. Besides, there are much, much worse matches than the creepy homebody Hades. You know, like Persephone's own father, Zeus, who, yeah, was definitely not above that sort of thing. Demeter thought about it, and she had to admit that even though her daughter's father was disgusting, Persephone still had been abducted and would be forced to marry her uncle, just because this wasn't as bad as Zeus wasn't exactly a comfort. Being a better match for Persephone than her violent, vile father is a comically low bar. Hecate tried to say, but, you know, Hades isn't doing too bad. I mean, he owns a third of the world. Oh, a third of the world, Demeter said? You mean the third that's cold, dark, and stuffed with dead people? Yeah, no thanks. Demeter gritted her teeth, pushed past the three-slash-one woman, and burst out the door into what was now a blizzard. Demeter did some soul-searching after that, and she found herself in a city, in disguise, and inadvertently bumped into a woman looking for a nanny. Demeter was hired to look after a new baby boy, and partially because she missed Persephone, and partially because she liked the kid, she decided to make the kid immortal. Part of that process was anointing him with the nectar of ambrosia and burying him nightly in the fire. Note, do not try this at home, anywhere else, or ever. The mother surprised Demeter one night, as the goddess was heaping hot coals on the baby, and the mother was pretty upset about this. Can't imagine why. The mother scrambled to the fire and pulled the boy out, throwing him to the floor and injuring him. Demeter then revealed what she was doing, and since the mother wasn't cool with a stranger heaping hot coals on her baby, Demeter would not be giving the child immortality. Bye. Mythology really gives mixed messages. When it comes to which strangers you should let watch your child slash bury them in fire, I'm going to be safe and say maybe don't let possibly mythological creatures watch your children slash bury them in fire. Things got bad. Zeus was angry. Not only was nothing growing on the face of the earth and people would die, and that was sad he supposed, but it was just so cold all the time. It was not toga weather, and this made Zeus angry. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. I don't think I'd like Zeus anyway, but you've probably picked that up by now. Something had to be done about Demeter and her mood, so Zeus invited her to dinner. If there was ever someone honored by the Olympians, and by Zeus in particular, it was Tantalus. Tantalus was the son of Zeus, and not only was he, a human, allowed nearly unrestricted access to Olympus, but he was a close confidant, an advisor to Zeus himself. I honestly can't decide if Tantalus was ungrateful and a little dumb, and just needed to push things a little farther, or if he realized that he was a human, among the immortal and capricious Olympians, and while things were going well right now, they might not stay this way forever. 
and he had to have a plan for when things inevitably went pear-shaped. So, of course, he stole the nectar of ambrosia and gave it to his human buddies. It would give extreme longevity, or even immortality, if used appropriately. And Tantalus had siphoned off a bit here and there and snuck it out of Olympus for months. Now, he and his friends had a basin of ambrosia. They knew the omniscient gods would come for them. They gripped their swords. They had arms and the freedom to use them. Let the onslaught from heaven come. But it did not come. Weeks passed, and then months, with Zeus still chatting with Tantalus amicably on almost a daily basis. Then, Tantalus realized something. The gods were not omniscient. They weren't all-knowing. Tantalus smiled. This knowledge was even more precious than the ambrosia. The gods were like humans, except truly immortal, and with superpowers. Once again, showing his penchant for taking things just a bit too far, Tantalus knew he had to test their abilities. He invited the deathless gods to dinner. Okay, so nothing in Tantalus' life is really set in stone, except how everything goes horribly wrong for him, but we'll get to that. And in a few hours, the deathless, most powerful beings in the universe would be sitting in his breakfast nook, and he forgot to go grocery shopping. Then, he had an idea for a kind of prank or test. He called his son to him, a young man named Pelops. He said, Hey, son, so you know how we have the deathless Olympians coming to dinner tonight? Well, I have kind of a fun idea, but I'm going to need your help. Yeah, sure, Dad, Pelops said. What do you need me to do? Uh, die, Tantalus said. Wait, wait what? Pelops said. Yeah, I mean, I have a plan, but I'd rather not do it. So if you can make that happen in the next five-ish minutes, that would be great. Thanks. No, what? No, Pelops said. What's going on? Ugh, okay. You're going to be difficult about this. I see how it is, Tantalus said, and stabbed his son in the chest. Shh, 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 Tantalus whispered as he lowered his son to the ground. I'll see you later, maybe. The Olympians were hungry, and even though whatever Tantalus was cooking smelled great, it was taking forever, and it led to some uncomfortable conversations. Zeus rolled his eyes when he saw Demeter, still moping about the abduction of her daughter, he spoke up in the least helpful way possible. Look, Demeter, he said, it's not like this sort of thing doesn't happen all the time. I mean, we got to see a good-looking human and abduct them. It's what we... He paused and looked at his wife, Hera, remembering that she was sitting right next to him. It's what we definitely do not do. That's horrible. We are all completely faithful. All the time. Roughly half the table shifted uncomfortably, and Hera rolled her eyes. Demeter didn't respond. The winds outside raged. Ares, Aphrodite, Athena, and everyone else at the table looked up when Tantalus and his servants came into the room. With the dinner, it was stew. Zeus asked his friend Tantalus what was for dinner, and Tantalus smiled. Y you don't know? Zeus narrowed his eyes. No, I don't know. Tantalus said, You could say it's an old family recipe. Here you go. He set the bowl down before Zeus and the others, but the king of the gods looked at it, looked at Tantalus and said, Wait, is this, no one eat the stew? The gods looked at him. Why not? Because it's his son, Zeus said. Tantalus started a slow clap. Bravo. He wondered when the gods would catch on. They obviously weren't omniscient. It took them long enough to figure it out, and they still didn't know about all the ambrosia he stole. Wait, did he say that out loud? 
Zeus clenched his jaw in rage and nodded. The Olympians recoiled in horror from these several ancient Greek taboos that had been served to them for dinner, all but one Olympian, Demeter, still in her funk after Persephone's abduction. She wasn't paying attention to the conversation and had enjoyed a few bites when she looked up and saw everyone staring at her in horror and disgust. Tantalus said, okay, you all look mad, but we'll all laugh about this someday. Now, I'll go get the bones. Are you going to bring my son back to life or what? They said, yes, you freaking sociopath. We will bring your son back to life. But what is the matter with you? Also, sidebar, remember how I said the bar for worse than Zeus was basically rock bottom? Well, after killing your child and serving him for dinner just for the lulls, I would like to say, welcome to rock bottom. But just wait, it gets so much worse. Before going on, there are two reasons for Tantalus's extremely messed up recipe. One reason was that he wanted to test the omniscience of the Olympians, and the other was that he had them over and realized that he didn't have any food, so he committed two really extreme taboos out of respect? My guess is that it was the first, wanting to test them out, and knowing that they would bring his son back, because they had done it before, because having children served in a dinner to them was apparently shockingly common. Zeus sighed, this is why we can't ever do stuff as a family. Without even looking, he pointed one hand at Tantalus, and lightning erupted from his palm Emperor Palpatine style, instantly incinerating Tantalus and killing him. All right, Zeus said, let's get this kid put back together and go home. Tantalus woke up and rubbed his temples. Ow! Was he killed? Ugh, he was killed. Man, Zeus could not take a joke. It was hot, and Tantalus knew he wasn't simply in the underworld. He looked around and saw, among other things, women rushing to fill up a vat of water, and a man pushing a large rock up a hill, only to have it fall back down. Oh well, he'd probably get it next time. It was hot though. Well, luckily Tantalus was standing in cool, fresh water up to his chin, now to just bend down and take a long, satisfying drink. He opened his mouth and bent down, but found that the water was still at his chin. No matter, he just needed to bend down a little farther. He did, but no matter how low he got, it was always just at his chin. When his face hit the dry ground, he knew that something was up. Licking the dirt, he found it dry. He scratched his head as he stood and noticed the pool of water refilling below him. Seeing the water, he dove back down for it, but it receded underneath him until his face, once again, hit the dry ground. He stood and the pool refilled, always staying just below his lips. Standing perplexed and more than a little annoyed, he noticed delicious pears, apples and pomegranates, and other fruit hanging just above him. He realized that he was actually very hungry, seeing as he hadn't eaten his dinner. For obvious reasons, he decided to help himself to a piece of fruit. He was, for some reason, surprised when the fruit, like the water, receded from his grasp. He strained and strained, but only his fingertips grazed the edge of the fruit. When he finally relaxed, they dangled again, just inches from his head. He tried everything. He tried jumping, but the fruit was fast. He tried scooping the water up with his hands, but every drop would drain before he could get it to his mouth. In hours, he was mad with hunger and thirst. In days, he found that no matter how hungry he was, or how many days he went without water, he couldn't die. Eventually, his tears dried up too, so he couldn't even get the meager sustenance from them. And, like Sisyphus, Tantalus would stand in a pool of water for all eternity, 
hunger gnawing at him, thirst consuming his thoughts, and being just inches away from both food and water, but never able to reach them. If the name Tantalus sounds kind of familiar, it's because it's the source of the word tantalizing, which comes from Tantalus's eternal punishment, with food and water being insanely desirable, yet just out of reach. Alternatively, there's another version of this story, where, instead of killing and serving his son, Tantalus stole Zeus's childhood dog, a gold mastiff. In that version, Zeus was angry and threw a boulder at him, killing him. In Tartarus, the super hot bad place, he lived under the threat of being crushed by a boulder. Though I feel like if a millennia passes and you still aren't crushed, you might start to wonder if it's going to happen. So, moral of the story, don't kill your child and serve him to the gods, or lie about having Zeus's dog because those are absolutely the same thing. Back above ground, the Olympians were finishing up putting Pelops, Tantalus's son, in a cauldron so that they could put him back together. Demeter said she'd take care of that part that she ate, and when they drained the cauldron, a young man was sitting in it. Demeter gave him an ivory shoulder, and Rhea, the mother of the Olympians, breathed life into him. He stood in the cauldron, naked before the most powerful beings in the universe, and had a lot of questions. One Olympian in particular really liked what he saw. Poseidon, who is usually pretty good about not carrying off people he finds attractive, was really into Pelops. We don't know if it was consensual, but Pelops became his cupbearer and bedfellow for a time. Unlike the women who were carried off by the Olympians, Pelops didn't get the standard package of a life of torment followed by humiliating death, but he got a really fast chariot that could run on waters without getting its horse ankles wet. We're going to jump right back into the story of Persephone and Hades, but that will be right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. If you're on a quest for epic gear, housewares, and collectibles, well, look no further. Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box filled with pop culture items from your favorite TV shows, movies, and games, all for less than $20 a month. Each month, there's a different theme with new exclusive items that you can only get through Loot Crate. So whether you're shopping for the geek in your life or the geek within, Loot Crate has tons of ridiculously cool, unique surprises. February 2017's theme is Build, and features Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Batman, Lego Dimensions, and Tetris, as well as Loot Crate's monthly t-shirt and pin. I'm a Loot Crate subscriber and a huge, huge Batman fan, so much so that my two-year-old says Batman in that super gravelly Christian Bale Batman voice, and we're kind of obsessed with Legos lately, so this is going to be a cool month. If you'd like to get the crate, you have until February 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive this month's crate. But after the cutoff happens, that's it. It's over. So don't wait. Head to www.lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends to save $3 off any new subscription today. That's lootcrate.com legends, code legends for $3 off any new subscription. This week's episode is brought to you by Movement Watches. A watch is something small, but it's noticeable. I have a movement watch. I've mentioned it before. And it seems like people don't notice if I'm wearing a new shirt or get a haircut. But people always seem to notice that watch. The watch has a really nice classic design and a quality construction. The company was started by two college kids who liked nice watches but couldn't afford them. I think that movement watches look better than the ones you'll find at the department store for four to $500. But movement watches start at just $95. They can do this because they sell online and cut out the middleman and markup, so you get a solid, great quality, great looking watch for way less than anywhere else. And a lot of people agree, they've sold over half a million watches in 160 countries. 
and you can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns by going to mvmtwatches.com slash myths. This watch is a really clean design. Seriously, I've been getting compliments ever since I put it on. And movement watches can also be a perfect gift for your Valentine. Now is the time to step up your watch game. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash myths. Join the movement. All right, now back to the show. It had been a few weeks since Persephone had been kidnapped, and the whole earth was crying out in despair. People were freezing. Maybe because it was the right thing to do to safeguard the future of humanity, or maybe because all the young men and women being shut up in their homes was really cramping Zeus's dating strategy. Zeus suddenly cared a lot about the future of humanity and decided to fix this issue. He would talk to Hades, and Persephone would be coming home. It was an uncommonly happy day in the underworld when Iris, the messenger of the Olympians, arrived. Despite the whole abduction and forced imprisonment for weeks, Hades had been fairly nice to her. He didn't lay a hand on her and gave her all she needed. Just this morning, he had given her six pomegranate seeds. What a bounty. And as she finished eating the last of the seeds, she blinked as she entered daylight and the world of the living. It was frozen though, and all the plants and flowers were dead. The rivers were starting to swell with the melted snow. So it looked like things were starting to thaw. What happened here? Persephone asked. You don't even want to know, Iris said. It's this thing we're calling winter, but it's over and it is not happening again. Let's just go get you to your mom. Persephone smiled and Demeter wept for joy when her daughter was brought to Olympus. The sun rose higher in the sky, warming the earth, and Demeter hugged her daughter. Her girl was home. She had done it. The Olympians couldn't take her daughter away from her. She held her daughter's hands and then told her to go change out of her traveling clothes. She had a banquet planned to celebrate Persephone's return. As Persephone walked away, Demeter looked down and noticed a slight red stain on her hands. It, it had come from Persephone. She smelled it. It was fruit. Pomegranate. Oh no, Demeter said to herself. still a little shaky on the rules, but if you have any food or drink in the underworld, that means you must return to the underworld. With just six pomegranate seeds, Persephone's fate had been sealed. Hades had tricked her, and she had to return to him every year for three months. Demeter tried to be happy that her daughter was back, at least for a short time. And for a few months she was. Her daughter was home. But around September or October, Demeter began to grow sad. She could see it in her daughter's face. Persephone was starting to weaken. If she didn't return to the underworld soon, then Demeter would lose her forever. The first year was tough, and Demeter couldn't help but be sad. Unfortunately, the weather couldn't help but match Demeter's mood. The world was, once again, forced to endure winter. Persephone said hi to her friend or friends, Hecate, and sat down for a long three months of strained dinner conversations with her not-at-all-consensual husband. Hades was as happy as the grim and dour god of the underworld could be. This is probably the root of that cheesy saying, if you love something, set it free, and if it returns, it is meant to be. If not, well, give it cursed underworld fruit to compel it to return to you three months out of the year, plunging the world into icy darkness. Time 
time passed, and things ended amicably between Pelops and Poseidon, or Poseidon let him go, depending on the level of consent. Regardless, Pelops' kingdom was ruined by the Olympians for his father's misdeeds of killing Pelops, and like most heroes at this time, he was filled with the type of ambition that makes you want to enter into a deadly, rigged contest for a woman's hand in marriage. King Onimus was hanging a decoration in his house. He pounded the nail, stepped back, and looked. Nope, not level. He adjusted it. Ah, perfect. He took about three or four steps back until he could see the whole wall and the now 12 human heads that were all lined up and level. He smiled. Perfect. Who said he needed to hire an interior decorator? The heads in the walls were of King Onimus' daughter's almost boyfriends. She was a beautiful young woman who had more than a few suitors show up seeking her hand in marriage. The king was 12 for 12 in murdering his daughter's would-be husbands. The deal for the daughter's hand was this. The king would give you a head start in your chariot. If he caught you, you died. If not, then you got to marry the princess. You'd race from the ancient Greek city of Pisa to the Isthmus of Corinth. It was about 200 kilometers or 124 miles, so the king had some time to catch the suitor, which he did. 12 times. I wonder if the princess ever got tired of watching her father catch up with the suitor and brutally murder him, and then have to ride back in the chariot with her suitor's head. King Onimus wasn't just an overprotective father. His selectiveness was because of a prophecy that whoever married his daughter would kill him. If you see an issue with hearing a prophecy that your future son-in-law will kill you, and your solution is to put yourself in deadly conflict with all potential son-in-laws, then you see how fun Greek fatalism can be. Pelops, the reassembled son of Tantalus, decided that he should try to put his life back together. The Olympians ruined his kingdom, and so he needed to find another. Then, he heard of Princess Hippodamia, and the challenge for her hand. A challenge that required a super-fast chariot. Seeing as he had a super-fast chariot as a consolation prize from his breakup with Poseidon, he thought this would be easy, and he had no idea how easy it would be. King Onimus's charioteer, named Myrtilus, was in love with Princess Hippodamia. He was either too scared or too smart to try to win her hand from a murderous father, who also happened to be his employer. Hippodamia just liked him as a friend. He was nice enough, but then she decided that he could be useful. She surprised him as he was scrubbing the floor, and he nearly fainted. She said that she needed him to do something. His heart melted. Finally, finally she had come to him so they could be together. He nodded. She said that she wanted his help in killing her father. She explained that a man had come to the kingdom, seeking her hand. He was wonderful, and she wanted to marry this man, named Pelops. You'd think that this would crush the charioteer, but he barely heard the second part of the sentence, about Pelops. He knew of the prophecy, everyone did. If he killed her father, he would marry her. It was airtight. He smiled eagerly, and she said great, but then waited. She asked if he was sure he heard her. It wasn't so that they could be together. She loved Pelops, the suitor. He said, oh, he understood, though he didn't understand. Okay, good. Here's the plan. Wait, did you just wink when you said that? He said, absolutely not. That's crazy, though he absolutely did. She said, let me be super clear. I want to marry Pelops, not anyone else. No one else. If you do what I ask you, you won't just be the charioteer in the kingdom of my new husband and me. You'll be someone powerful and important. Is that understood? He chuckled. Wow, could she be any more obvious with that husband talk? He said, oh, he understood all right. Wait, did you just wink again? She said, you know what? Doesn't matter. The race is in like 10 minutes. Here's the plan. 
King Animos sauntered out in his armor, seeing this little fool, the son of Tantalus, a disgraced king, ready in his chariot. There was something about those horses that Pelops was driving that made him uneasy, and he didn't like how close his daughter was holding the young man. He had a bad feeling about this. He wouldn't give Pelops very much of a head start at all. He yelled to Pelops to leave, and that he looked forward to killing him and all that, Pelops took off like a shot. King Onimos stood wide-eyed, then he smiled. Finally, a challenge. It only took about 10 kilometers for King Onimos to catch up to Pelops. The princess began to worry, but then the charioteer's preparations took effect. The princess had made something, a long time ago, for the day when she actually liked one of the suitors, who came by to try to win her hand. A chariot is a cart, with, usually, one axle. Those axles were held in place by a linchpin, which kept the axle from coming out of the wheels and kept the cart off the ground. Princess Hippodamia had made a wax linchpin and had convinced the charioteer to replace it. In the sun and in the race, the wax became soft and the wheels began to wobble. In the heat of the chase, King Onimos didn't realize what was happening until his chariot crashed to the ground, the wheels coming off. It was dangerous, but maybe not deadly. If Onimus had been able to get free from the reins, as the bottom dropped out from under him, he realized the reins had looped around his left arm. He hit the ground hard and kept going at full speed. By the time Pelops and Princess Hippodamia were able to stop, turn around, and catch the horses, King Onimus was nothing but a mangled ball of blood and armor. It was Hippodamia and Pelops' wedding night. The king had been buried with all honors. They took down his morbid decorations, and now they were riding back for Pisa, with Myrtilus, the charioteer who had helped them kill the king. They stopped off because the three of them were parched, and now King Pelops left to get water. Myrtilus watched Pelops go, smiled, and looked at Hippodamia. That was really nice of him to leave us alone, Myrtilus said. So, does here work for you? I mean, it works for me. Basically anywhere will work for me though. Hippodamia was confused. What are you talking about? She said. He said, oh, I think you know what I'm talking about. She looked at him. What? No, 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 no. What? He said, that was part of the deal. I kill your dad. I get to, you know. She recoiled and screamed for Pelops. Myrtilus gritted his teeth. He said, yeah, let's talk to Pelops. Pelops emerged minutes later to a very distraught Hippodamia who said that Myrtilus had made advances on her and was acting super weird. Pelops sighed. And this is something you don't want to do? She said, no, absolutely not. Wait, why? Pelops took a deep breath. Tell her why, Pelops, Myrtilus said. Pelops glared at him. I'm getting to it, Myrtilus. Pelops turned to his new wife and said, hey, so don't be mad but I may have gone to Myrtilus the day before the race and asked him to sabotage your father's chariot. In exchange, I may have promised him that he could spend the first night with you and that I would give him half of the kingdom. What? Hippodamia yelled. Yeah, Myrtilus piped up, and by may have promised, he means definitely promised. Pelops looked at him and said, thank you for your contribution, Myrtilus. You're being very helpful. Hippodamia shuddered with disgust at her husband's touch when he placed his hand on the small of her back and led her over to where Myrtilus was standing by the cliff. He asked his new wife, so this is something you definitely don't want to do because it could really help us out of a jam. Hippodamia just looked at him, glaring. Absolutely not. 
Philip sighed. All right, well, she kind of didn't have a choice. Neither of them did. Then he looked at Myrtilus, who was smiling a smug grin. And Pelops said, unless... Pelops gave Myrtilus a shove, and the man stumbled backwards a bit. He didn't have any time to react to what happened next. Pelops kicked him square in the stomach, with all the force a grandson of Zeus could muster, which, spoiler alert, is a lot. Myrtilus flew backwards, off the cliff. And if a sharp kick to the vital organs from an epic Greek hero didn't kill him, the ocean below would. He couldn't swim, his body broken. But with his last breath, as he dropped below the water, he cursed Pelops and all his descendants. Pelops and Hippodamia settled into a marriage that is as happy as one that includes the murder of a parent and the promising of your spouse to another for said murder could be. The family of Tantalus would have a difficult time. They are cursed, of course, by Tantalus's original horrific act of murdering his son and serving him to the Olympians. In Greek mythology, this sort of stain carries on to the children, and each generation must answer for the sins of their ancestors. The issue with the curse of the house of Atreus, as it would come to be called, is that it included the tendency to double down on that curse. The members of the house of Atreus would not just have to deal with the horrible results of what their parents did, but they would see the atrocious actions of their parents and just say, yes, more of that please, and then do their own vile acts, compounding the curse so that it would rain down all the hard on future generations. Tantalus was bad, and while it's debatable that Hippodamia killing her father and Pelops breaking his oath and murdering Myrtilus was worse, it was still pretty bad in the eyes of the Greeks, and only added to the family's intense bad luck. We're gonna buzz right through the house of Atreus, because it's hard to establish a character, have them commit an atrocity, and then die over and over and over again. Niobe, their daughter, met a nice man who, while not as good of a music player as Orpheus, made stones dance with his songs. Together, they ruled the throne that passed to Pelops, and had 14 children, seven daughters, and seven sons. Having 14 children is no small feat. It's like being pregnant for a decade straight. And to be frank, having 14 kids survive to adulthood in the ancient world was pretty good too. Niobe certainly thought so. And she demanded that everyone in Thebes, her city, worship her as a goddess. And the pedestal she placed herself on was a narrow and a tall one. She was angry that people were sacrificing Toledo, who, if you remember from episode 44, was the mother of Artemis and Apollo with the infant Apollo killing Python with his chubby little baby hands in between naps. Well, since number of children is the only metric for godhood, and Niobe had 14 children to Leto's two, she was obviously seven times better than Leto. Leto heard this, and sitting with her children who were, to put it extraordinarily lightly, really excellent with a bow, she turned to Artemis and Apollo and said, well, that's disappointing. All right, kids, take them out. Standing before her people, just as the words left her lips, one child, then another, then another groaned, screamed, or simply just dropped behind her. She turned around as the last one died, Artemis and Apollo's arrows protruding from them. She erupted into anguish, doubled over in pain, and, as happens when you're really sad, literally turned to stone. It's when we get to Atreus and his brother Thyestes that we see the atrocity hat trick of child murder, cannibalism, and incest. Okay, so Atreus and Thyestes were sons of Pelops, and because they are awesome, they killed their older brother in an attempt to get the throne, which led to Pelops finding out and getting them exiled from Olympia. 
always one for making excellent decisions, our old friend Eurystheus, who is also kind of old now, this takes place after Hercules, had invited the brothers to come live with him in Mycenae until they could get on their feet. Well, remember how Hercules had way too many children with way too many women? Well, they attacked Enmas and killed Eurystheus, which led to the brothers taking over the throne of Mycenae. Except that if you're willing to kill one brother for the throne, you're probably willing to do bad stuff to the other. There was this whole thing where Atreus had a really nice solid gold lamb and decreed that whoever possessed the stuffed lamb got to be the king. Well, in a relationship development that we will get to momentarily, Atreus's wife snuck his brother, Thiestes, the stuffed lamb. At the banquet to declare the new king, Thiestes stood up and said, Oh, this lamb? And everyone celebrated their new king. Zeus was a fan of Atreus, though, and apparently had nothing better to do than to meddle in the politics of an ancient Greek kingdom. He had a messenger go to Atreus and have him put forth a challenge. If there would be such a sign as the sun going backwards in the sky, would Thiestes give up the throne? Thiestes agreed because... Of course, I mean, that's ridiculous. And, well, you can guess what happened. Zeus made the sun go backwards, and Theestes was banished. Unfortunately for everyone, Theestes and Atreus' wife had struck up an affair, and Atreus found out about it after Theestes left. So Atreus and his wife had a painful discussion, and their marriage ended, and everyone moved on with their lives, sadder and a little more broken, but still hopeful for tomorrow. Just kidding. This is Greek mythology. So Atreus decided to take a page from his grandpa's playbook. He called his brother back under the pretense of amnesty, killed and cooked Thiestes' sons, and fed them to him. When Thiestes finished dinner, Atreus, I guess, danced around with his children's hands and feet, leading to rage and possibly a lot of vomiting on behalf of Thiestes. Thiestes was, once again, banished from the city, but sought out advice from an oracle about what he should do. I don't know if the gods were just trolling the family of Tantalus at this point or what, but they told Thiestes to have a child with his still living daughter. Remember what I said about doubling down on atrocities? So he didn't want to be known for incest, so he disguised himself, sent his daughter on an errand, and then attacked his daughter on the road. Yeah, this is really dark. This is like peak Greek mythology. He accidentally dropped his sword after the act. The daughter had a child that she did not want to keep, so she escaped her father and exposed the child on a hillside leaving him to die, but leaving the sword with him, he was picked up by a shepherd and taken to King Atreus, who took pity on this kid that looked like royalty. Thiestes moved on and became a king. Decades later, he was again called Messene, under the pretense of mending fences. He was thrown into a dungeon, and who else was sent to kill him but his secret son? The young man raised the sword over his head, but Thiestes stopped him at the last moment, asking him about the sword. It was revealed that Thiestes was the young man's father. Everything was starting to fall into place for Thiestes, who told the boy to go get a certain woman. Now in her late 30s, it was his daughter. Long, dark story short, she was so repulsed that the stranger years ago had been her father that she killed herself. The young man was told to take the bloody sword to Atreus, who rejoiced at Thiestes' supposed death. Atreus was surprised then when Thiestes strode in through the doorway. Atreus looked on in shock, first at the very alive and free Thiestes, then at the sword protruding out of his chest, after his adopted son had stabbed him from behind. Thiestes, again, became the king of Mycenae. Can you see why I just wanted to speed through that story? It is important though, because while it's kind of the end of the story of Atreus and Thiestes, it is just the beginning. Atreus had two sons, who had been visiting another kingdom when their father had been killed. 
they were now dispossessed of their birthright. Exiles. Even though they wouldn't have their father's kingdom, they would take his curse. The curse of the house of Atreus. Their names were Agamemnon, who would become the leader of the Greek forces at the Trojan War, and his brother, Menelaus, who would marry the beautiful princess of Sparta, a young woman named Helen, who would come to be associated with a city halfway across the known world, in a war that would take a decade, consume countless lives, and would go down in legend as shaping the world as we know it. That won't be for a little while though. My soul can only take so much Greek mythology. Also, about today's episode, we should talk about the intense horribleness of Tantalus's line. A lot of times there's a disconnect between our 21st century opinions and those of the characters in these stories. The Greeks, however, saw the actions of Tantalus and his descendants as revolting as we do. Cannibalism, murdering a family member, especially children, and incest were disgusting and terrible, and they would see the house of Atreus as cursed for their actions. Next week, it's a really cool story that I've gotten a lot of requests for. It's the story of the Ring of Solomon and of the Dragon of the North. And if that sounds straight out of Tolkien, believe me, I made way, way too many Tolkien references in that episode. Also, on the plus side, I can promise that there won't be any child murder. I want to say thanks to Prius P88, Mavicat, Deadwood007, General Lotso Dorkalicious, Zippy Wow So Great, Elementary, Cats Are Awesome, Anne Marie McPhee, Brugulation, ZV1975, I Love Beer 6969, Ricky B823, London Sheep, Mountain Dew Alchemist, and Dirty Deanna for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so, so much. It is a huge help, and I just love to hear from you. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place, and you can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. Also, real quickly, you may know this, but we have a Myths and Legends store, and we just added new stuff to it. We added some posters and a t-shirt to the store. There's a Boy Who Drew Cats poster, a Cat Sith poster, and a new Blame It on the Buttercat shirt, in addition to the three shirts and one poster that were already up there. You can find the store at mythpodcast.com slash store. The creature this week is the Naki from Finland, spelled N-A-K-K-I. It's another water creature from Scandinavia, and its hobbies include drowning people and ugliness. Because it's a mythological creature, it likes to drown children just because, and it will look for children bending over bridge railings, out off of docks, and just looking into clear water. We adults, we're smarter, and maybe have better balance. Well, we, too, need to watch out for the Naki. For women, it will rise from the water in the form of a beautiful, naked male, asking you to come with him to his underwater kingdom. If that surely normal occurrence happens to you, just ask him to turn around. Like the Encantado in one of the earlier episodes, he apparently can't shapeshift completely and has to put his ugliness somewhere. Because his front is facing you, that means his backside is full of matted, stinky hair. But really, if you've been listening to this podcast for long enough, you should know not to follow naked strangers into the water or forest. It hardly turns out well. For men, he can transform as well. I'm not sure if the hairy back still applies, but he'll transform into a super voluptuous woman with three breasts. And while that may be extremely normal in futuristic sci-fi action movies, it should probably throw up some red flags if you're hanging around modern-day Finland. Say you don't see a man or woman, but a horse, hound, or silvery fish flopping on the riverbanks and 
Hey, free horse, hound, or silvery fish flopping on the riverbank. Do not take the free animal, or else the free animal will take you to the bottom of the river. Also, a new horse, hound, or silvery fish is a big responsibility. Are you sure you're ready for that? I don't know if we've talked about this in the past, but a lot of times these water creatures were either explanations for the reasons people would drown, or just scary, oddly specific stories to keep children away from lakes, rivers, and the sea. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs, and there are links to other music in the show notes. If you'd like to say hi on social media, I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and sometimes Instagram, at MythPodcast. Thanks again to Loot Crate for sponsoring this episode. Whether you're shopping for that geek in your life, or the geek within, Loot Crate has your monthly fix of pop culture items, all for less than $20 a month. Order this month's box before 9pm Pacific Time, on the 19th, to receive tons of cool gear related to the theme Build, featuring Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Batman, Lego Dimensions, and Tetris, as well as Loot Crate's monthly t-shirt and pin. Just head to lootcrate.com slash legends and enter code legends to save $3 off of any new subscription today. All right, that's it. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.